Welcome to Inside Track from Planet Tracker, a series of podcasts where we talk about some of the key themes the investment and finance community needs to know about for COP27 this November. I'm Peter Elwin, Director of Fixed Income and Head of the Food and Land Use Programme at Planet Tracker. And in each episode of Inside Track, my guests discuss the finance community's role working alongside policymakers to transform sectors and systems and offer some insights to help us navigate the negotiations in Egypt. Welcome back to Inside Track. In this episode, I'm delighted to welcome John Willis, Head of Research at Planet Tracker, and Rachel Hemingway, Head of the Transition Programme at the Climate Bonds Initiative. Rachel, perhaps you could take a moment to explain the work that Climate Bonds Initiative does. Thank you, Peter. Um, And thank you very much for having me on your inside track today. I'm very pleased to be here. So the Climate Bonds Initiative is an international NGO that's focused on mobilising the capital markets to fund action on climate change. It does this in three main ways. The first is through the creation of credible standards for investments in various activities from renewable energy through to um, cement production. The second is through undertaking continuous analysis of the bond market to demonstrate what is and isn't credible and what's happening in the bond market. And the third way is through providing ongoing and targeted policy advice on sustainable finance to our partner governments around the world. Fantastic. Thank you. That sounds like a, like a pretty busy schedule. Just before we uh, we move into the discussion, John, you're actually calling in from a conference at the moment. What are you doing today? I'm in Amsterdam today. I'm at an innovation forum, the future of plastics and packaging. We may come back to uh, packaging uh, at another stage in another of these podcasts, but uh, we'll focus on sustainable finance for today. And Just in terms of the finance community, COP27 could represent a breakthrough in green finance. And we need governments to actively lead the charge, along with central banks, when it comes to developing and implementing sustainable financial instruments. And in this episode, we'll be interrogating where sustainable financial instruments worked well and where they haven't. But first of all, I thought it would be good to start with a really basic question. Uh, Does sustainable finance work? John, maybe uh, maybe kick off with you. What, what do you think? Does sustainable finance actually work or, or is it really just another form of greenwashing? I think it does work. And I think it goes at different paces for different types of finance uh, effectively. So let, let me just give a, a couple of examples. And I know that we've got an expert on here as well. So I'll be careful what I say. If you look at, at green bonds and some sustainability linked bonds, actually they've grown very, very quickly, I would argue from zero. Uh, now I know people want them to be a lot, lot bigger, but remember that the size of these markets is trillions of dollars a time. So. Look, you've got things that work, uh, I think, quite well. I'm not saying they're working perfectly, but they're certainly growing, which would imply that there's some demand for them. In other areas, quite frankly, it's incredibly disappointing. So if I look at uh, instruments such as debt swaps, the first debt swap uh, was in 1987 uh, in Bolivia. 
And really, they haven't worked very well, and they're few and far between. There's been a whole variety of colours, as you know. We've had blue bonds. Really, we've only had a smattering of blue bonds. The answer is sometimes, Peter. And we probably ought to come back and uh, and talk about some of the sort of terminology, bloom bonds, green bonds, and uh, and you were talking about uh, debt for nature swaps as well. But um, but Rachel, I mean, throw the question over to you. And perhaps you know we sort of know the answer in the sense that you work for an organisation called the Climate Bonds Initiative, uh, but maybe you still feel she'd be taking a lot of the initiative, and uh, and there's not a lot happening. What what's the score from your perspective? Thank you, Peter. Yes, um, definitely. For sustainable finance, does it work? I would say yes, but it works when it's credible. And when I say credible, what I mean by that, I suppose, is that there's some independent verification or there's some independent setting of the targets for the sustainable finance for what it's trying to achieve. So something that's labelled sustainable in the financial world is not necessarily sustainable. It's just a self-labelled instrument. It's like eco. Eco doesn't really mean anything. Sustainable doesn't really mean anything unless it's backed up or underpinned by some of the increasing amounts of independent guidance, frameworks, target-setting initiatives that are coming out now. So there's you know, a whole smorgasbord of um, independent financial sustainability performance targets is what we call them. It's like what, what you're aiming to achieve and how you're going to get there, as well as these things called key performance indicators, which are, you know, what you should be choosing to focus on. So a, a key performance indicator would be something like greenhouse gas emissions. And a performance target would be something like a reduction it by 20% in your greenhouse gas emissions by 20%. So sustainable finance, if they're underpinned and supported by these independent yeah, standard setting organisations, then yes, they can work, they can provide transparency to the market, they can provide guidance to the market that yeah, there's investor demand for this, that issuers will issue against these because there's investor demand and because um yeah, people want to get ahead of the, the regulatory curve um, to avoid you know, future problems by addressing these problems uh, in advance, as it were. But they don't always work. Um, just because something's labelled sustainable doesn't mean it's sustainable. So in essence, I would say, yes, they do, but not always. So... You've got all this sort of green wall, all this money washing around looking for green investments. You've got that huge incentive to apply the green labels. And then, as you were saying at the start, basically anybody could slap a green label on anything and uh, and hope to attract all that money. So so we've moved on from there, haven't we? We've, we've now got some sort of standards developing. Yes. Yeah, there are a lot of standards in the market that are coming out from various places. There's, um, you've got um, ICMA, the International Capital Markets Association, are kind of the go-to um, standard setter in the international debt market. They provide the you know, the absolute basic needs of what you would want to see in a green bond, a sustainability linked bond, um, a transition bond, what have you. And a lot of issuers issue against ICMA. It's the best known, and you know it's it, it's quite high level, so it's relatively easy and relatively flexible. In addition to that, there's more granularity coming in now. You have um, these kind of these things called taxonomies, which are 
essentially lists of activities that could be considered green. Um, my organization, Climate Bonds Initiative, we have our own taxonomy, which is mostly 1.5 degree aligned and provides certification as well for, for issuers in, in the debt market. So coming back to the, the original point, is there any value in sustainable finance? I'd say yes, but, or yes, when. And that but or that when is when it's credible, which means when it's science-based, it's externally set. These, these um, kind of ambition levels and targets are set by an external body such as ICMA, Climate Bonds Initiative, Science-Based Targets Initiative, SBTI, uh, transition partnerships initiatives. There's lots of us out there now so setting these standards. So you've got to have a, a sort of a credible, a credible reason, if you like, for raising the finance, and then you've got to have somebody external, sort of assessing and verifying um, and confirming that that credibility, if you like. Yeah, 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 basically. And so, I mean, both of you mentioned um, the, the the point that you know, yes, sustainable finance sort of works and you've you just sort of established one of the, the sort of key criteria for making it work which is sort of credible verification but i got the impression from what what you were both saying that you know it sort of worked better in some areas than some others and i and i wondered you know john maybe you, you you mentioned this a couple of times in what you were saying you know are, are there areas where it's been particularly successful and maybe there are areas where it hasn't been so far but we want it to be what's the sort of story in terms of the market's development yeah, I mean, a couple of points that, that both you and Rachel have made. Um, firstly, let, let's sort of look at frameworks because that sort of allows you to think, are things being successful? In fact, are rules being followed? I think, you know, we've just got to be realistic here that what we've got is we're looking at financial instruments which are effectively driven by the capital markets. That's what we'd expect. That is the capitalist system. In these banks, you have a lot of extremely bright people who are actually paid to innovate and to create instruments. And it's not just in the environmental field. It's all over the place. Listeners of a certain age will know about the financial crisis. Other ones won't. But, you know, it was all about very clever instruments that people had created and then they weren't quite sure what was in them. John, this is um, this is a, a slightly unfortunate introduction. So I hope you're going to sort of reassure us that this is not another growing global financial crisis no, in the making. But no, carry on. But what, yeah, no, but what I'm what I was going to go on and say, because I can see that you're getting edgy, um, <laughs> is that what you've got in some cases is instruments have been created and actually, there isn't a framework. So I completely accept what Rachel's saying. I, I think that the bond markets, et cetera, are well ahead. And I'm relieved about that because a recent survey from um, the London Stock Exchange Group, that's FTSE Russell, is telling you that the biggest chunk of sustainable money, over half of it, is in fixed income. So that, that's, that's great news. You can take that, uh, Peter, and think that that's good. But you've also got, let, let's take carbon. Let's go right back to creating a carbon price. And you go, well, there's a carbon market. You needed a couple of goes to create it. That's acceptable. Uh, then you go, oh, hold on a moment. Let's start talking about sort of derivative type things. So I'll sort of create things like carbon offsets. Now look where we are. We're actually, you can go and buy in cryptocurrency derivatives on carbon offsets 
course, there's not a framework in place. There isn't a framework in place for cryptocurrencies. But the point I'm trying to make is that you are inevitably going to face product development that has run well ahead of the framework. And by the way, it may fizzle out and die. All I would say is, it's a bit of a cliche, but buyer beware. Yeah, I can see you nodding, Rachel. So uh, you, you're agreeing with buyer beware. Is that? Uh, are we still in the sort of a bit of a wild west type environment at, at this stage in terms of sustainable finance? I would say yes and no. There is a whole set of sustainable finance which is relatively regulated, relatively. Um, I keep using the word credible, and I'm a little bit obsessed with credibility because to me, credible means it it encompasses everything. It encompasses the ambition levels. It encompasses the ability of the organization to meet the ambition levels. And it encompasses the fact that what they're trying to do is externally defined in some way by these frameworks. So there is a whole kind of set of sustainable finance that is credible. And then there is this Wild West, which is very much buyer beware, um, and you really need to do your due diligence about what you're buying. Now, you can do it an easy way and just go and buy a verified or a certified green green bond. That would be the easiest way. that takes all the um, uncertainty out of it to buy something that's been ex, um, independently certified or verified. If you just want to buy something that's labeled ESG, then you might want to be do a bit more digging of your own and you know look at what they're actually saying. Look at what targets they're um, claiming are they you know are they realistic are they transparent this is I mean this this is a key thing and it's one of the big um, one of the big areas that the green use of proceeds market really drove into the bond market was this transparency that wasn't there before because if you issued a green bond you really had to say what it was doing and you really had to show how it was going to do that so it was a bit of a game changer in the market and it did kind of lead to this acceptance of a, a need for greater transparency and a need for ambition and a need for external ver- verification, almost beyond the SPO, the, the, the second party opinion providers. So, yes, it's it's definitely buyer beware on the one hand and on the other hand, there there are options out there. But like I said, there's just not enough projects for the demand so there'll always be someone coming in saying, yeah, we can do that. But. Peter, I, I think that's the point that, that Rachel's making is, is you could turn around and say, look, every market is driven by greed and fear. That's, that's fine. We get it. But in this particular case, I think Rachel's really got to the, the, the nugget here is that you've got so much demand for these products because financial uh, institutions, asset managers have committed to sustainability and greed. So they need these products. And I think that what we're seeing, certainly at Planet Tracker, and it sounds Rachel is also seeing at Climate Bond Initiative, is actually people aren't doing their due diligence. They're having to buy it because it's got a, well, they don't have to buy it, but they're buying it because it's got a label on it. And they think that that will satisfy, I suppose, their customer base. But whether it satisfies regulators further down the line, I think is a different issue. That's interesting. So that actually suggests from what you're saying, John, that, um, you know, in a, and what Rachel said, that in a sense, the the, the problem is not necessarily sort of, you know, establishing frameworks for uh, 
particular financial instruments. We've we've got those, but it's actually finding ways to make sure that the investors who are supplying the capital are actually putting money into uh, investments that really match the, sort of the, the frameworks that they are selling to their ultimate clients. So if I'm a pension fund coming along to, a, to an investor and I say, uh, yeah, I want a sustainable bond fund, uh, then I've got to be satisfied that that fund manager is actually then allocating my, my cash into the right financial instruments. And at the moment, uh, it sounds as though there's a, there's a sort of constraint on supply in terms of high quality instruments. And the risk is they drop my cash into something that's a bit lower quality. I mean, that does sound a bit like, John, like what you were saying earlier, as though, you know, we could be uh, we could be heading for another financial crash, but this time with a, a green edge to it rather than simply sort of uh, fear and greed in the capital markets. I mean, do you think that's a that's a fair concern or am I over-egging things? Yeah, well, I think... I think on the I'm going to use sustainability and ESG in the same breadth, actually, and I know that's contentious, but for the sake of ease, let's do that. I think the problem now is that you've got a lot of assets in these areas, however they're classified. I mean, Rachel mentioned taxonomies and things earlier, but just broadly that that people have classified it in this way. It's become a highly competitive area. And by the way, that's led to a further problem. So I'm sounding very bleak, but I just want people to realize these issues. So what the, the issue over cost is it's very competitive and Rachel's right. You better go and verify these claims, because if you don't verify these claims, whether it's a consumer doing it, whether it's a financial institution or regulator, they can come to you and say, well, it's not doing what it said on the tin. You go, well, I thought it was. But if you do go and verify it, then I've got to pay the verifier as well. So I can't do this on the cheap. And I've got to be competitive against those who perhaps want to chance it and don't verify it. I know what I would do. I'd be verifying it and squeezing the margin a bit because I think that ultimately it could be a short-term gain. But on top of that, in terms of regulation, it's very, very interesting. So all the financial markets know about the big financial regulators. And there's sort of been, normally there's regulatory arbitrage, isn't there, where you go to one region because the regulation is easier than in another region. But when you look around the world at the moment, it's pretty difficult to find a regulator who's not talking about sustainability and are you following the rules? And interestingly, it's the SEC that's been leading the way with fines. You've got ESMA in Europe, you've got the FCA uh, in the UK, you've got MAS in um, Singapore. I mean, we could go on and on and on. So you've got the financial regulators and interestingly, you've got consumer regulators. So what I mean by that is the Federal Trade Commission uh, taking Europe, you've got the European Commission in the UK, you've got the advertising agency, and they're coming in and saying, well, you're making green claims on products. Are they true? Now, go back to the view of the investor. If you're an asset manager, you've invested in these companies because you saw them as green and a consumer regulator comes along and says, well, you're not green. You're thinking, oh, my goodness, I'm now fighting two regulators. So I, th- I absolutely agree with Rachel's marks. You, you, you need to make sure you verified. You need to do your due diligence. And I think if you have, 
I'm actually very optimistic about things. Yeah, that's really that's actually quite encouraging. I think so. In a sense, the, the sort of the, uh, the the catch is coming from from the regulators focused on the financial markets, and that's forming a bit of a pincer movement. But um, yeah, Rachel, uh, what, what were you thinking on that? Yeah, I would like to jump in because I I was thinking about your comment about are we leading to a potential crash with these very convoluted and complex instruments and. I think what we're probably going to have, and I think we've started to see it already, is a backlash against ESG, which was possibly the precursor or maybe just you know an early an early mover in the area of sustainable finance. But it was very vague and a bit wishy-washy. And that was, I think, taken a bit of advantage of, maybe, of the people who were designing these instruments. And we've seen now that people are increasingly distrustful the market is increasingly distrustful of ESG announcements so what I think that's going to push for is a greater uptake in this kind of the verified and the certified market so the the certified climate bonds for example or um, something that is externally um, verified and you know checked and there there is this independent due diligence so I think I'm not necessarily thinking there's going to be a, a crash from it, but I think it might actually lead to something positive in that it will lead, it will it create this demand for independent robustness of sustainable finance. And that in turn will lead to potentially more mainstreaming of sustainable finance and a movement away from what we call vanilla bonds. And vanilla is just you know, a normal bond. Um, towards the sustainable side, which would be green, it would be transition, it would be sustainability, sustainability linked, for example, and they those would become the become the norm rather than the the exception, which is ultimately the goal, I suppose. Yeah, that's thank you both. That's quite a quite a sort of an optimistic message, I guess. So in a, in a sense, you're you're both identifying the the shifting sands moving in favour of um, clearer structures, stronger focus on on what the financial instrument is actually trying to achieve. And as you were saying earlier, Rachel, this uh, this process of verification and certification, so that everybody involved can be much more satisfied that. Uh, the instrument is actually going to do what it says on the tin. Um, and that was something I just wanted to sort of touch on as, as as we sort of, you know, head towards the close is, you know, ultimately all the excitement around sort of frameworks and verification and, you know, whether, whether it's a Wild West or a very sort of a regulated market, ultimately all these instruments are trying to actually achieve something, aren't they? They're trying to actually change the way that businesses operate and put them on a more sustainable footing, as you were saying, Rachel, so that we ultimately end up with, um, you know, oh goodness, only a 1.5 degree temperature rise by 2050, which, um, you know, could still be quite a serious outcome for some some people. But that's what we're ultimately all about. We're trying to actually achieve something with these these instruments. And John, just wanted to come back to you for a second. You know, you mentioned a, a non-green green financial instrument. You were talking about blue bonds earlier. And, and, you know, so what is a blue bond in the context of green finance? It's a bond focus on the oceans rather than the land, hence the colour, I think, to be, to be honest. I mean, Peter, the, the point I want to make is really interesting because I, I guess if I was a sort of listener hearing to us all talking about this, we would... Um, be thinking, well, why bother with any of this? You know, why, why bother with greeniums and, and uh, you know, whether it's a crypto carbon offset or anything like that? And I think the answer is we have to. 
Um, so we've got to get this right. I think there will always be blow-ups. There are blow-ups in the financial market the whole time, and everyone's trying to guess what the next one should be. So I don't think we should get obsessed with that. But we need the capital markets to work effectively and get behind these sustainable, environmental, and ESG concerns. Because if it doesn't, the money will not be allocated in the right way. So if 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 people just think about it, taxes, taxes are financial incentives to encourage action in one way or not. Subsidies are a flip side of that. We need to provide money to developing nations to deal with these issues. And if we don't, and I'm sure, well, it, the, the signs from COP, the next COP27 are you know, you've got to pay up developed countries, otherwise we just can't develop this infrastructure is crucial. So we cannot just afford to say, oh, let's forget the capital markets and move on. It's got to work. Yeah, that's, uh, I think, really, a really powerful point, John. Maybe the last question before we close is, is, you know, looking at COP27 from a sustainable finance perspective, you know, what do we need to see? Is there anything specific you would like to see coming out of COP27, Rachel? I think there's a lot of things I'd like to see coming out of COP27. Okay, number one, I want to see delivery on pledges. That is over and above anything else that I would like to see. There was a lot said at COP26. There were a lot of commitments made. I want to see delivery on the Glasgow Climate Pact. That would be the number one. Now, that's not specifically sustainable finance related, although there are a lot of finance elements in there. So, for example, the commitment to end fossil fuel subsidies. I mean, they define them as inefficient fossil fuel subsidies, but to be fair, fossil fuel subsidies are just inefficient. So, I would like to see fossil fuel subsidies gone. I'd like to see the global methane pledge followed up on. Everybody's missing their targets on this at the moment. Methane is a really low hanging fruit. It is the single fastest action you can take to mitigate against climate change is cutting methane. You know, it's win-win because most 35% of methane comes from the oil and gas industry. And if you plug all those leaks and stop all that flaring, you actually free up not that that's necessarily a good thing, more oil and gas and other fuels to use. The ongoing battle to get the 100 billion in finance delivered is, I, I don't know if we're going to see a resolution on this at COP in November, but actual action and delivery on the pledges that have been made before, because I think people are just getting a little bit disillusioned with the whole process and with the very slow flow of money to where it needs to go. Just a, a very quick plug for something that Climate Bonds put out a couple of days ago is 101 policy actions for governments to take at COP. There's a lot of action that can be taken. There's a lot of action that needs to be taken. We're not going to achieve everything, but over and above everything else, do what you said you would do would be my my big thing. That's really yeah. That's a that's a key takeaway. I think, John. Is there anything that you know you you were sort of hoping to see from from COP twenty seven from a sustainable finance perspective? Yeah. Well, clearly, I'm not sophisticated as um, Rachel because I don't have a hundred and one or whatever the magic number was. Look, I, I'm I'm going to sound like a rabid capitalist here. I, I think we've got to sort out the money. 
It's not going to work without the reallocation of capital, especially from developed to developing nations. They don't have the infrastructure. They're not going to do it unless they are some way compensated. So maybe a brutally simple answer, but I, I do think that's at the nub of things. Well, look, thank you. Thank you both. Thank you to John Willis and Rachel Hemingway for joining me to discuss sustainable financial instruments today. I guess the key takeaway for me is that progress is being made. Things are developing in the financial markets. But as Rachel and John were both saying, in terms of COP27, we need to see actions uh, and not words. And I think we all agree that the sustainable financial market works best when governments and central banks provide leadership. So we definitely need to see more of that uh, at COP27. We've already seen some interesting developments in uh, in developed markets like the UK with green gilts. And we've seen leadership from countries like Chile and Uruguay. Um, but not yet from key countries like Brazil um, with serious deforestation problems. And they're a key player in the global food system, which uh, is going to be part of the solution. So lots to look out for. Watch this space at COP27. Still to come on Planet Tracker's Inside Track. In our next episode, we'll be talking about the transformation of our food systems and the critical role of the financial community in that. John Willis will be joining me again, and he'll be accompanied by Planet Tracker's CEO, Robin Millington. You can subscribe to Planet Tracker's Inside Track wherever you get your podcasts or by going to Planet Tracker's YouTube channel. I'm Peter Elwin. Thanks for listening. <laughs>